Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. At the very beginning, Ruth 1, we have the introduction of two of our three main characters, Naomi and Ruth. Chapter 1 opens with the line, in the day when the judges ruled. And this gives us our context. In a time that we are told that so many people were going their own way, disconnected from the way of God. There was idolatry and brokenness, people not caring for the poor. There was a lack of good and healthy and true authority, not unlike our world now. So little trust in that space. You have a story This small, humble little story emerges. There are still faithful people in the land. And so the story goes in chapter one, really quickly to summarize, all of the men die. (laughs) Ruth, back up. Uh, Naomi, there's a famine in the land and Naomi and her husband have gone into the land of the Moabites, have gone to a place that you don't normally go. There's a good Hebrew people and Hebrew family, outsiders. And they go because there's just not much food. And we're told that Naomi leaves uh, empty, or sorry, leaves the land full. And then we find in Ruth 2, she returns back to her land empty. See, Naomi in her going to find food, then finds herself desolate. Her husband dies. Um, Her two sons die. And she is left with these two daughters-in-law. There's no real reason to stay in the land. She hears there's food back where she came from in Bethlehem. And so she returns. And as she's returning back to the land that she came from, having so little left with her except for these two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. She pleads with them because they are Moabite women. She says, look, you guys should stay here. There's nothing left for you back in this home country. They're not really your people. You will be a foreigner. You will be an outsider. There's There's just so little there for you. Stay here. Get remarried. Like, make sense of, like, what's going to happen in this new land. I'm going back home. And so they both say, no way, Ruth. You are, like, the best mother-in-law ever. Anyone sitting next to their mother-in-law right now? Yeah, it's that mother-in-law, the best ever. And they're like, we're not going back. I mean, sorry, we're not staying. We're going to go with you. And she pleads, no, 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 I'm telling you, it's so foolish, I love you too much. And Orpah does the sensible thing, the sensible thing. She's like in tears, gives her a kiss on the cheek and goes, all right, you're right, I'll stay, I'm going to miss you. And it's this wonderful parting, makes sense. Ruth, on the other hand, says this, where you go, I will go, where your, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And the two of them return to Israel and the chapter one concludes with Naomi So sad and broken at the way her life has turned out, she changes her name to Mara, which means bitter. Bitter. Chapter 2 is where Ruth meets Boaz. 
Naomi and Ruth are discussing where to find food, and it just so happens to be the beginning of the barley harvest. Ruth goes out and happens to end up picking grain in the field of Naomi's relative, Boaz. We're told that he is a good dude, my translation. He notices Ruth, after finding out her story, shows this remarkable generosity towards her. He makes all of these special provisions that we've been talking about for the immigrant Ruth to gather in his field, just as the law commanded. He is an upstanding guy, one of the few people in this day and age who's following the way of God and cares for her. See, there's a whole infrastructure in the Jewish law that cared for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And so... She found herself cared for, but he goes above and beyond. And Boaz is so impressed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi. She didn't have to come back that he prays that God will reward her for her boldness. And after Ruth comes home that day, Naomi finds out she's met Boaz and she's thrilled. And we talked about this last week. Sarah and I taught on this word family redeemer, kinsman redeemer, and why it was this powerful protection for Women in particular in this day and age. There was an opportunity for the bloodline of Naomi to keep going. For Ruth, who was sort of destined to a life of scrounging for little bits to care for her mother-in-law, could now get grafted into the family. We talked about the ugliness and brokenness and evil of patriarchy. It's not when men are leading. It's when men are leading in a system that is broken and unhealthy and not good. And we see a good man in this setting following a law that is a provision at this day and age, at this time and place. Something that may feel so archaic to us now, but was actually so incredibly powerful. And that it brought her back in, or we're going to see, it's going to bring her back into the family. So Naomi and Ruth are making a plan to get Boaz to notice Ruth and to actually step into this role as a kinsman redeemer. Ruth goes to meet Boaz at the farm at night. It's this whole sordid scene. Please listen to last week's sermon. Um, there's a lot there. It's like I can't just summarize this quickly. <laughs> um, but it was this very fascinating scene. But Ruth goes in and we see these two people who are of noble character. Begin to see each other's destinies wrapped up in one another. And so... This loyalty now we see that Boaz has to the family. It's, he finds himself saying, I will be this family redeemer for you. I'm going to marry you. And then we find out actually that there's somebody who is closer, a relative that's closer to be this kinsman redeemer. And so we're not quite sure at the end of chapter 3 how this is all going to go. And so that brings us to Ruth. Four. If you want to turn in your Bible or look at your paper. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. So there's somebody else, this kinsman redeemer, guardian redeemer, family redeemer, all the same thing. There's somebody else in the family line who should actually take this role. So Boaz is about to like inherit this land, step into this family, do this huge leap and goes, actually, guys, we really, he's a man of integrity. And the law would say there's somebody else who we should consult first who is closer in a relative. Boaz took ten elders of the town. This is a legal proceeding that we're reading here. And he said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to this other guardian redeemer, we don't get the guy's name. So it's clearly, like, not important. I like to think Boaz wrote the story. There's no historical precedence for this. 
But Boaz is just like, I'm not even mentioning that guy. Get him out of here. Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I'm the next in line. I will redeem it, the guy said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you will require Ruth, the Moabite, So he doesn't know, this new redeemer doesn't know that it's Ruth the Moabite that he's marrying. The dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer, the family redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Remember again, Ruth is the outsider. If you're brand new to all this, you're like, I am not keeping up. Ruth is this outsider, Moabite, disregarded. Not only is she a woman, but she is not of the tribe. And when this next person who would take over this family, essentially, continue the bloodline, like we talked about last week, the bloodline is everything. Continuing this, this has everything to do with security and provision and destiny. And this guy is like, wait, 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 you want me to marry her? Nah, it's going to jack up the estate. We don't know all the reasons why. There's clearly some financial ones, and very likely, because Ruth is now called again in the story, in this part of the story, the Moabite, that he wants nothing, this new potential redeemer wants nothing to do with it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal, gave it to another. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Just a great point, anecdote to bring up at Christmas. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, that's her grandfather, Kloman and Mahalan. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Mahalan's widow, and my wife, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are my witnesses. This is an awesome moment that we clearly have no, no, no uh, option but to sort of miss being not people of this time and of this place and of this law. But this is the moment where the confetti flies. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing and be famous through the offspring of the Lord gives you by this young woman. May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. That's, by the way, those of you who are looking forward to having the talk. That's it. That's all you need. That verse, one and done. The woman said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a family redeemer. 
May he become famous through Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than the seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. Remember, if you've been tracking the last four weeks, Naomi is bitter and empty and tired and broken and beat up. She's exhausted and at her end and a bit desperate. And the story ends with the reverse of chapter 1. I think it's verse 17. She went away full but came back empty. Well, now she is empty and has now become full. In the wake of a broken scenario, God has met her. And not just her, like cheered Naomi up with a grandkid. This is kind of how we read this with modern ears. No, it's like the family line will continue. All the myth around like the sort of curse and brokenness of what will be if her family is redeemed. Naomi has a son. Didn't see that coming. And they name him Obed. He was the father of Jesse and the father of David. Just a few quick observations. Chapter 4 is a total reversal of chapter 1. Left full but return empty. The death of sons and husbands are reversed as Ruth is married. The opening tragedy followed by this great act of loyalty on the part of Ruth being willing to stay with Naomi, is matched by Boaz's act of loyalty and leads the family to final restoration. This loyalty, this loyal love we've talked about over the last couple of weeks is this word, said. It's arguably one of the most like, key things to understand about the whole of the Bible, everything in Christianity. It is this loyal covenantal love that God has for us that we then have for each other. Again, I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's teaching. And so the literary design of this little story connects to this really interesting feature. All of this loyal love and faithfulness and brokenness. Do you notice somebody who is not directly mentioned in this whole book? Anybody? God. God. God is mentioned so little. The characters talk about God a couple times, but the narrator hardly mentions God explicitly doing anything in the story. We're in the Bible here. You would expect, and then God came, right? Some of the best chapters in the scripture are us sort of getting this peek behind the curtain of what God is up to. Tim Mackey points out that this is the subtle brilliance of this whole book because God's providence is at work behind every scene, weaving together the lives of these characters. While Naomi's tragedy leads her to think that God's punishing her, we discover that he's actually on a mission to restore her. God accomplishes that restoration through Ruth's boldness and loyalty. And the reason why Ruth's actions bring healing in her and Naomi's life is because of what? Boaz, this just simple, faithful farmer who's full of this generosity and loyalty. God weaves together people just faithfully obeying, who are not worried about the consequences of doing the right thing, to bring about his redemptive purposes. It's beautiful. And then we get to the end. 
And the end's a little funny. And guys, we have so much to get into and so little time because it's Christmas Eve morning. But I'm just so stoked on this. So if you're like so not stoked, let me just like pass off some of my energy on you. <laughs> Is that okay? Because I want to talk about genealogies and your eyes are going to roll back. Stay with me for a minute. This book, this beautiful love story with all of this symmetry, for those who've studied like ancient literature, you know people have written books upon books about this book and how it's written. Fantastic. But then it ends in a way that like is the reason why many of you don't like to read your Bible because there's these random things that just pop up now and again. We get to the end, and if you have your paper in front of you, flip it over, there's a, that's how it ends. There's a genealogy. This right here is why people get bored and confused when they read the Bible, but this is what actually brings home the idea of God's providence at work. The author is clearly drawing our attention He's to a connection between David and his great-great-grandparents. And the reason why that's so important is David is the one who is the bloodline of Jesus. And there's these two genealogies here, if I can like get a bit nerdy for a quick second. It looks like there's one, but there's really two. In chapter 417, we read, they gave him a name, Obed. A son has been born to Naomi. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. That should be it. Done. But then we kind of get a longer one here, which is, again, technically unnecessary within the framework or the story or just getting us to know that David is the descendant. The longer one, though, is super strategic because it's trying to weave or is weaving Ruth's story into, like, this epic narrative of the whole Bible. The opening phrase is, these are the generations of. This is the identical phrase. All right, just calling on the Bible nerds. Guys, we're that kind of church. We're like a Bible church. We like to dig into it. So for those who are expecting something else, sorry. That phrase right there, these are the generations of, is the identical phrase that divides up the book of Genesis. Identical phrase. And it's the 12th occurrence of that phrase in all of the Old Testament, which is not a coincidence. Twelve is this symbolic image of the united tribes of Israel and this whole story that is pointing, pointing us towards the, um, an indication that a whole new age is beginning. All of this, these numbers and genealogies, the number 12 and how it ties to Genesis and why this Ruth story is about this larger, bigger thing. This isn't just to like stimulate your intellect for a minute or again, give you some random Bible knowledge. I want to show you why this can have a profound rest, like produce a sort of rest and peace and groundedness and rootedness in your life no matter what's actually happening in real time. The numbers and the connections and the genealogies are loaded with all of these sub-themes and narratives, not just here in Ruth, but everywhere. And so I want to try to show you the meta-theme in most of them. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles, you don't have this in front of you, to Matthew 1. This is the beginning of the Christmas story. But just like every like, great story in the Bible, it begins with a genealogy. 
This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. I'm gonna kind of jump a bit through this long section. I'm not gonna read the whole thing. There's Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Holla, Ruth is in there. I just said holla, gosh. David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile to Babylon. And 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Matthew, we read this, Matthew 1, 3, 5, 6, 16, and 17. All sorts of random info. Why? Why does it matter? This is a resume. Genealogies are resumes. And Matthew begins with a list of names that is meant to tell us something deeper. Most uh, times throughout classical literature, anyone who's ever studied ancient history knows that most genealogies are tinkered with. We know, for instance, that Herod purged all sorts of folks that he didn't want to be connected with him. Because remember, everything is about the respectability of your roots. and Everything's about bloodline, like we've been talking about in Ruth. It's not an individualistic society. Bloodlines and names and pedigree are how you are impressed and how you trust a culture, how you trust a family. That family is full of a bunch of people who are liars. You're probably a liar too. This, by the way, is, can be overstated, but it's understated in our world, right? It's a little bit understated. Because we have this idea that, like, history began when we were born. Right? Our generation really struggles with this idea. Yeah, yeah, life just began. I didn't inherit any of the brokenness. I wasn't born into a broken system, whether we're talking about class or race or violence. or We're just like, no, 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 fresh start when I was born. Like, nah, bro. Right? We have inherited all sorts of things, even in our culture. No, no, I'm sorting out my own destiny. No, you're consumed by celebrity culture and hurry all of the time. Why? Because everything in your world is compounding that. You don't just have a fascination, love affair, and infatuation with Taylor Swift because you decided you liked her music. I'm just saying, not a shot at T-Swift. It's that our whole culture is pounding that into us. It's a generational idea that's led to the fact that we suddenly adore pop stars, 46-year-old men writing think pieces on T-Swift. It's fascinating. No judgment here. I'm I'm dead serious. It's just a reality. We look at like, no, no, I just like her music like thousands of other people. It's like, no, there's a whole infrastructure, culture, and subtle forces that push us to even have that sort of fascination. I digress. I have the microphone, so I can do that. (laughs) Matthew does the opposite thing than than most historical figures do with the genealogies. When Matthew writes out, okay, Christmas story's coming. Who's this baby Jesus? This whole book that he's writing. What's this whole thing about? He starts mentioning Gentiles, outsiders, women, which you'd think would be like, that's awesome. Like, no, it's not a thing that people did. They didn't do that. In the ancient patriarchal world, you would never list these people. These were the sorts of prayers and things that were kicking around. Next slide. Blessed are you, king of the universe, for not having made me a Gentile. Next slide. Blessed are you, king of the universe, for not having made me a slave. Next slide. Blessed are you, king of the universe, for not having made me a woman. Like this is part of the culture that, and things that were read even near the temple. Tamar is in the genealogy. Sold herself as a prostitute to her father-in-law, Judah, in order to secure her inheritance. 
Rahab was a Gentile prostitute saved by her faith. And we're reading, obviously, about Ruth now, who is a Moabite, explicitly excluded from the blessings of the people of God. These are gender outsiders. Most of the Gentiles are unclean. They're not allowed to worship with you. They are racial outsiders. We can go further. We can talk about this for a while. But these particular choices that Matthew makes are actually sort of maddening if you're trying to tell this group of people at this time what this God is like, unless you're being accurate and you're trying to say something subversive. It's as if everyone who could be excluded by one group or another is being brought into God's family. We're learning something in this little genealogy about who God is and what Jesus is going to be up to to during his life, death, and resurrection. You You could put it this way. Your pedigree doesn't matter. Maybe put it like this. Come all who are jacked up and foolish. Come all who have chosen the way of death time and again. Come. All those who need to hear the good news of God's grace and God's love. Come and hear the announcement that God's family is as wide as the universe. He turns it upside down. All cultures encourage their members to look down on some people. This is not a new thing. This is how you congratulate yourself for your own superiority. We're constantly taught that some people are unclean. We're constantly taught that some people are beyond hope. Even you get strange threads right now within the way of Jesus. Within Christianity, right, you, we see this. You get, this, you get these threads like, well, yeah, yeah, sure, war is bad, but really, like, the blessed secular state of Israel needs to, like, they can do whatever they want. I'm not just trying to poke the bear for fun here. There are massacre and brokenness happening, and there are certain little pockets of the church that are having conversations like, well, really, really those are the outside, outsiders. I listened to a sermon the other day from a pastor in Gaza, a pastor, a follower of Jesus, sharing about the brokenness and wreckage of what's happening. We do this. We other people. We fail to see the larger thing that God's doing. Matthew's genealogy includes outcasts, the scandalous, the foreign, and the family of Jesus comes to anticipate the family that he has come for. The grace of God is so pervasive that even the genealogies of the Bible are dripping with God's mercy. It's powerful. My temptation at this point in the message is now to drill down and show you the 18 different ways this is true which would be fun for some of you who've got the time today. But I want to point out that this idea of the genealogies being something that might bring rest and joy and hope and and, um, a deep sense of security come from the fact that we are being told that God is... Sovereign. Or we're getting a picture of God's providence. When we read a genealogy and we see how God 
through allowing human choice, allowing people to choose life and death, and allowing the brokenness of those choices to come into the world, even then, God's purposes still come to bear. That's what a genealogy shows me. I'm not trying to just like spew some random Bible knowledge because it's my job. I'm telling you, as somebody who is in desperate need in this season of life to know the rest that comes from knowing that God has the world in his hands, however that fleshes out. When I am exposed, just like you on my newsfeed, to so much brokenness and ache that produces, we know, the most anxious generation in the history of the world. Say hello to each other. That's you. That's us. There is something when we look back at these stories and we see the line, that should have gone sideways. Those person's choices should have gone that way. When we look back at all of these things, we go, oh my Lord, at the announcement of Jesus, at the conclusion of the book of Ruth, we realize that all of these choices, the good and the bad, God has woven together still into his redemptive purposes. Also, could we please move off the slide that's behind me? It's a really weird slide to have behind me. <laughs> Thank you, friend. You following me? You with me? Matthew gives us background that helps point out that we can't judge God by our calendar. He mentions these generations and the 14 years and all of this time. Why? Because God may appear slow, but he never forgets his promises. He may seem to be working very slowly or even to be forgetting his promises, but when his promises come true, and they will, they always burst the banks of what you thought was possible. And this is the Christmas story. 400 years of exile expecting a king, and we get a stinking baby. Literally, comes in weakness, and all of the expectations of a whole people group are confounded. Advent reminds us that God is working out his promises, that he is faithful, and that he is sure. That he is able to give us more than we dare ask or think, like it says in Ephesians. And we see it. We see it even then in the numbers. At the very end of this section, the way in which these numbers, and again, I don't have time this morning to play it all out for you, but we see the way that Matthew has ordered these groupings of people into groups of seven. Seven, the seventh seven is about Sabbath. Matthew not only is showing us how he has been sovereign through all of these folks. He's not even giving us a picture of what God's family is like. He is literally saying, this is the rest you have longed for. The genealogy and the way it's structured is this massive signal because there's always something below the surface with these Hebrew writers. They're sneaky. And Matthew just goes seven sevens and he groups them this way, which is a signal to those reading going this, there is a rest that is coming, a rest that is coming through Jesus Christ. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Christmas tells us that despite appearances to the contrary, our God is in control of history. And someday he will put all things right. We have then this powerful hope in the future 
Jesus' genealogy filled with stories of ugly sin and broken people remind us that God's plans are bigger than any mess that we've created. Any mess that you've been dealt with in life. Out of the mess comes Christ. And so may we not stand at a distance from these stories and from these genealogies. Might we enter in? I don't know what mess you've created or what mess has been created around you that has impacted you. But my goodness, this is hope that out of the mess, when, especially when we become like Ruth and Boaz, when we embody that said and covenantal, loyal, sacrificial love, God will redeem. And even when we fail, this is a cheesiest analogy, but I just, I love it. You remember the days of the GPS that was mounted on your dashboard, right? And every single time, right, you would go the wrong way. It would, ne- it would always say what? What was the phrase? Yeah. Recalculating, rerouting. Allowing the, the choice. That thing's not in control of the steering wheel going left when you should have gone right. But we see the God of the universe again going Like, let's reroute this. God works all things together for those who love him. This is not a throwaway, cheap thing. This is a promise of God's covenantal love in our life and in the life of his people. And so let's return to Ruth as we close. Ruth shows how God is constructing his grand story out of the small, seemingly inconsequential stories of everyday people. It's the little things, man. It's just the little things. The little story is intentionally framed at the beginning and end by the larger story of the scriptures and what God is doing. And lest you forget, you can just remember the name of our city. Providence. Roger Williams named this city Providence. He said it was out of God's great mercy and providence that he was able to escape the oppression that he was under. Providence is a theological, biblical, God-centered word that basically just means provision and protection and involvement. R.C. Sproul basically says you can sum up providence with God for you. God for you. To trust that God is at work in our stories is to trust that I can rest knowing he has the future. That song we sing every Easter, for I know he holds the future, right? I know he holds the future. That song we wrote in our community about he redeems our past. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. Life is worth the living just because he lives. So no matter what we have to endure in this world as followers of Jesus, nothing has the power to sever our relationship. Nothing has the power to disconnect us from the love and sovereign providence of God. Amen. Holy Spirit. I pray in these last few minutes together, Lord, that you would come. This is the prayer, by the way, we just pray every Sunday at the end of the teaching. We just say, 
Holy Spirit, would you come? Wake my soul. If there are any ways that you sense the Lord ministering to you, anything that's happening in your heart, maybe it doesn't even quite make sense on your head right now, but there's like this sense of God just wooing you to trust again. To take maybe what are like some simple platitudes or things you've sort of heard before and actually bring them to bear on your anxiety today. Bring them to bear on that broken situation that is just feels like it's spinning you out of control. Let it come to bear on that sin that's in your life that you know is so un- just not good. <laughs> this is the, the, the magic of this moment is to say, Spirit, would you come? Jesus, would you come? And even if I don't see what you're doing or how you're weaving things together, I know that you have given me the opportunity to respond like Ruth and to respond like Boaz, to respond to this God for us, to the providence of God, to allow it to move me to kindness and gentleness, to move me to justice, to move me to laying down my life. And so, Lord, help us to get our eyes up onto you, to get our eyes up onto the story that you're telling, to get our eyes up onto you, Lord, the one that we love and the one that we trust. Help us, Lord. Amen.